Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today, growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Isaac Heller. And Isaac and I are going to talk about AI and how it's impacting the CFO. And I think that's an area that lots is happening now and lots are going to happen in the future. So, Isaac, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thanks, Kevin. Good to see you. Good to be here. Isaac, tell me a little bit about you. Yeah, definitely. So, Isaac Heller, CEO, co-founder of Trulian, AI-powered accounting software. I hail from the great state of Texas in America. I'm currently in Israel, where I work with our global company. We've got presence in New York and in Tel Aviv. And by way of background, I studied history, liberal arts as they call it. And then when I was thrust into the working world, I ended up working in a lot of financial roles, such as the strategy and corporate development. My touch point with accounting was when I was doing an MBA in Texas, and I took these accounting classes and fell in love with GAP IFRS and really started to think about how to transform uh, certain accounting workflows. Later, when I went back into the corporate world and worked in mainly pre-IPO growth stage tech companies. And I'm married with a family and a few kids and very fortunate these days. So your company is already transforming finance with AI. Tell me a little bit about what it does. Trulian, we're a startup. We're at our what they call our scale-up phase. So we've been around for over three years now. The seeds of Trulian came out of my experiences and many other experiences in the corporate finance world, mainly around what you would call accounting in the US, and realizing that there was all these new regulations coming in, such as revenue recognition and lease accounting and new audit workflows, and recognizing that there wasn't a lot of good software to implement that in. It was spreadsheets and documents. And also recognizing that wasn't good for the broader financial transparency ecosystem, because then you would expect the auditors to do more. So if you as a finance and accounting team had to do that much more work and review that many more documents and have that many more spreadsheets with your models, and now your auditor has doubled or tripled their work in an environment where you can't pay them two or three times the amount. That's how Trulian was born, to try to automate that. So in the past few years, we've actually focused on those original workflows, such as revenue recognition, such as lease accounting, such as audit and audit prep workflows. And all three of those specific workflows are in a platform. That platform allows accounting teams, a controller, a chief accounting officer, head of finance, to manage their workflows, leveraging AI and a rules engine. And then their auditors can actually come into Trulian and see all of the data and all the work in one place. And it makes both sides' life easier. I totally get that. This is one <laughs> of the lot of sentiment that if there's a rule book, you do it according to the rule book. All the auditors should need to do is have some quick way of saying, yep, they followed the rule book tick. And an awful lot of effort is expanded. I think of audit as one of those necessary evils you've got to have. But does it really add any value? No, it doesn't. It just costs you money to put a tick in the box. I think to some extent, value is relative. If you're in a paper and pencils world, there's some level of value you could give by checking the books. And then if you move to a 
abacus world and then a spreadsheet world, then there's some value in validating that data. And if you're implementing new systems that you've never seen before, yeah, the auditor has a clear role. And I think that having a watchdog system with big companies managing billions of dollars is a healthy thing for the world. Do I think we're in an era where people like you and many others question to what extent the auditor value could be had? Are they just checking the box? Are they just making my life harder? Are they just asking me a bunch of questions so they could cover their rear end? On the other hand, it doesn't have to be like that because we as companies do need auditors. We as banks and lenders and private equity firms want auditors. We want that stamp. We want that level of trust. And so I think there's a question of can those auditors perhaps do a little bit more? Meaning, can the mundane and routine checklist tasks that they're doing today be automated? And then the money I'm paying them, they could come in and give me more advice about how to structure my company and structure my finances and automate my processes on the finance side. I think that would be really value-add. And I think that based on the training and the nature of auditors, that's very possible. But first, you have to close the gap of all this work that needs to be put into the mundane and routine tasks. I think that's something that's common across this whole field of automation and AI. To get to the stuff that really adds value, you've got to get rid of mundane routine, the number crunching, the checking, the reconciling, whatever it is that just has to be done and get on to putting the value in that. I remember probably 20 years ago, drawing diagrams about the future of finance functions. And you'd have the triangle, which had the value add at the top, the big transaction processing bit of the box at the bottom. And then you always drew the triangle the other way up. That diagram hasn't changed for 25 years. Suddenly, I think I'm seeing the technology that's going to let us get there. I think you're right. So there's a lot of hyperbole around artificial intelligence, but I think that it's merited, or at least it will be merited. It's going to take time. It's not going to automate everything. It's going to be an enabler, not a job killer, as some people are, are saying. But it is different. It's different because whereas spreadsheets or database could just put your debits and credits in a much cleaner format, they didn't scale into unstructured data, right? Such as documents and rule books and what you would think of as the applications of generative AI, all of this knowledge and information that's out there. And because of that, you still had a series of silos. So this person had their spreadsheet and then the documents were in Susie's drawer and then this thing was right here. And then you put that in a ledger and then the auditor would come and check the ledger and they would say, oh, let me see that. And you would show them something from your workbook and they would say, let me see that document. And so it would be in this siloed process. And so with artificial intelligence, it can grab the document and pull it in. It can automate the workflow end to end. It can even help you assess risks within the workflow. And then finally, if you're an auditor, you could see that in one connected um, layer instead of a silo. And that's never been achievable before. So Artificial intelligence, and I guess you could just look at the name, it's a very services-oriented industry, which you would call human intelligence. And so artificial intelligence could do some of the things that humans do and change the kind of nature and dynamic of how humans and service-oriented industries 
interact with technology. So obviously, Kevin, I'm in, I'm all in. I'm not like a futurist who thinks that we'll all turn to robots, but I definitely think in this specific vertical, accounting and finance, there's going to be a lot of interesting applications. None scary. Yeah, I'm all in too. I'm sitting here looking at this from two angles. Number one is we're here in Gross CFO with the learning and development angle. How much time do you spend prepping training courses, for example, writing blog posts, writing LinkedIn articles, what you want to say? You've got the bullet points. You've got the mind map. It's then the grunt work of, I've got to now put this down into an article, into a lesson, into whatever. Now, if you can use AI to do some of the grunt work and give you the first draft, wow, fantastic. Then you're polishing it. If you can go ask AI to do some of the research for you, great. No different sending a research assistant off to do it. Probably five times quicker, 10 times Uh, quicker. There's a lot of applications of AI across different industries. And I think when you talk about Trulian and you talk about business, you have to get to a certain point where you say, is this going to save me money? That's what it comes down to. When you talk about generative AI and and social media content, you mentioned being able to whip up a LinkedIn post pretty quickly or ask you to summarize things on a personal note. Those things, you may pay for them, but not at a scale where they're just going to be transformative. It's just going to save you a little extra time. With businesses and where we work, which is B2B with corporations with hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of employees, AI has to have a real cost savings application. And so that's what we're focused on is this overhead of how much time, how much cost, how much risk am I assuming by doing these things in a lot of silos? And then that's where our AI plays. And we just make a cost savings equation instead of, oh, it's going to be so much faster, easier, different. It just, it's going to save you money. Time equals money in my experience. Oh, yeah. I always remember when I started working in the fast close area, getting month end better. We always cited the one example. Cisco Systems were the first company to come up with the idea of the virtual close. You literally close the books on day zero. And then you look behind it and said, what was the driver? Did they want better information faster? No, they wanted to save money. I think that's what it's all about. Sadly, if you look at the industry, it's gone from, okay, we do a 14-day close to an eight-day close, and then some new CFO comes in and he says, we're going to get to a six-day close and a three-day close and all these things. It all comes down to money. And you do get to a point where you say, well, wait a minute, why is my close not automated? Why is it not a real-time close or a dynamic close as things are coming in? And then you'll get to a place where you say, wait a minute, why can't auditors just check me every month, right, after my close or a couple days after the month? So audit moves from, from once a year to once a month type thing. All these things are about saving money. I think the scary part is when you hear that. So now these guys, Isaac and Kevin, are talking about this idea of close going down to three to two to one days, I think that scares a lot of people. I really do. I think they take that job very seriously. But I also think there's a broader horizon. I also think that the quantitative skills that are used to build uh, Excel models and tick and tie and run accruals and close management, all those things can be applied to strategic areas. And so I just think you then just bring the cost and saving downs and then these strong quantitative 
leaders are able to do more strategic things. That's an area to go and explore. We said we we're going to talk about AI and the CFO. A lot of the things we've touched on at the moment, Isaac, are AI and the financial controller, AI right. and the finance. Step this up a level, AI and the CFO. Where do you think that's going? It's a good pivot point because the cost savings is the name of the game. I think the first area they're going to think about is how do I save money? And I'll take it even up a notch. So a CFO has a responsibility to look for efficiencies across not just their team, obviously, but the whole business. A CFO needs to be that person in the room who is encouraging the other teams to apply AI or at least evaluate it in their areas. So a couple good examples. The CFO should be making sure that customer success and customer support is leveraging AI to answer questions, queries, tickets, whether it's via email, via chatbots, via telephone now. That needs to be leveraging best of breed there. So that's one area. Second area is marketing. There are so many great tools out there that can automate the production of content and a lot of other areas within the marketing. So the CFO does need to make sure cross-functionally in the business that all the teams are leveraging AI for cost savings purposes, or at least providing the business case of the pros and the cons there. Then you go down into the CFO's realm. Now, I don't think that the job of a CFO changes that dramatically in an era of AI, I think that what we talked about with financial accounting is very important. That's a number one application that the CFO should be looking for. I think the number two application should be around their FP&A budgeting forecasting tools. Whereas accounting is about cost savings, FP&A is really about speed and complexity of financial data for forecasting and strategic purposes. So if you Previously, I wanted to model a second or third scenario, and it took you two weeks. Now, you should be able to ask that question to an AI-powered financial forecasting application and have that answer pretty quickly. Then it's just going to be around what type of strategic finance leaders do you have in your team that can come up with the different scenarios you ask. And I've seen prototypes around just being able to ask Slack or a chatbot, hey, run this scenario for me with seven incremental engineers and three less salespeople and tell me what my EBITDA margin is. And it works. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean people are comfortable with it yet, but that's the other way. So you've got cross-functionally across CMOs and customer success. Then you've got the financial close and accounting. Then you've got FP&A. Trying to think, Kevin, are there any other big areas for CFOs to apply AI? I think the dynamic with your service professionals is going to change. Right now, CFOs, they know the bill with legal, they know the bill with accounting, with audit, with consulting, with all these areas. There should be additional pressure on those service providers to either move to more fixed fee or value-based pricing as opposed to hourly pricing, or just offer more tech-enabled solutions. I don't know if it'll drive down the cost of how much you pay in legal fees or accounting fees, but I definitely think you'll get more out of your corporate lawyers and accountants as they start to adopt more AI. You may not feel it right away, but in the next five years, you should absolutely expect it. And if your providers don't have a clear answer on how they're leveraging AI, then you might need to look for a next-gen provider. 
that's interesting that the areas you've just talked about, consulting, legal, they're all based on charging by the hour, charging by the day. You take away a lot of the grunt work, then the value that those services add is much more important in the price than the time that they took. Do you think that's a change that we're going to see further afield? And I actually read a very interesting post. I reposted it myself. It was looking at the idea that we're all used to working nine to five. That's the way we were brought up, the way we went through our careers. Is there an argument all around for things to move into what's important isn't the amount of time you spend, but it's the amount of value you deliver? There's precedent both ways. So there's a famous book, relatively famous in tech circles, called The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And the argument was, I can figure out how to do just as much in four hours as you do in 40 hours or whatever it is. Okay, fine. So there's always been smart people, efficient people, hacky type people who figured out how to do more in less time. AI will obviously allow us to figure out how to do more in less time, but I would even just zoom out historically. The nine to five probably evolved Out of us, we were once agricultural, and then we were in the factories, and then we were in the office, and we like breakfast, and we like supper, and there's a sun and a moon. And I just think there's this probably natural human drive to be productive and to work somewhere around eight hours a day or 40. I don't know what it is, and I'm sure culturally it varies, but there is this really strong desire to contribute and to work that amount of time. I personally would argue that we want to work, we want to be productive, we don't want to have that much free time on our hands. And also economically, it doesn't make sense because when you have time on your hands, you have to consume something. And in order to consume something, you have to be producing something. Again, these are like more philosophical things. So Kevin, you're just throwing it out there. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's interesting. But I think we're going to want to work. We're going to want to work hard. We're going to want to take things like AI and use it more as superpowers to fill the day, not reduce the day. And that would be my prediction for the future. Kind of nothing new under the sun. AI is just a new enabler of our workplace and a new type of industrial revolution. We're still pretty much the same. I'd certainly echo some of those thoughts. I'm thinking about my own productivity. I probably first stumbled across AI about 18 months ago started using it, started playing with it. To start with, it didn't actually save me any time at all. It just took more time because I was just playing with this thing and finding (laughs) out what to do. I started off with something called Jasper. It's a chat GPT thing that was aimed at marketing and producing blog posts and things like that. Spent some time learning that, finding out what it could do. But as time's gone on, AI's crept into so many other things. This podcast, for example, the old workflow, we'd record it. I'd send it off to get edited, bring the edit back. I did have some software for a long time that would actually transcribe it, but then I'd have to write the show notes. I'd have to go through the transcription and build the list of timestamps that went into the show notes. Now, the software that transcribes also gives me the list of key points. I can click a button in there that says, summarize the conversation. Guess what? Paste, I've got the show notes. That's probably saved me three hours a week. Then there'd be the LinkedIn posts about the podcast. I'd take the show right. and put them into AI and say, write me a link, LinkedIn post based on these show notes. Bang, done in minutes. Job that would have taken half an hour in the past. 
that's just one example of probably AI already saving half a day in a week. Do I work half a day less? No. Tim Ferriss was unique. He actually wanted to work less or a four-hour work week, or maybe he had 36 hours of hobbies he wanted to get to. But your point is interesting is we think about CFOs, you found that efficiency in your production of a podcast. And you mentioned the summary. We're on Zoom right now. And I realized a few weeks ago that Zoom was now sending me meeting summaries with what we talked about in a reasonably accurate fashion. I also realized that we were paying quite a lot for transcription in our sales calls, but that Zoom was doing it virtually free of charge since we were already paying for Zoom license. So that's another thing as a CFO, you should probably do a vendor audit and kind of to your point about the podcast, make sure that the softwares that you're using don't have free or freemium AI features because there's going to be this conflation of different types of softwares can all now be embedded with AI. And so they'll start to chip away at each other. I think you've hit on something really interesting. And I go back years and years ago when I was working in the chemical industry and we had to turn around our business unit. We looked at customer profitability, product profitability, and reshaped the business. What was apparent even right back then that though we were a volume manufacturer, the thing that made the difference between profit and loss was people's time and effort. This is when I discovered the power of activity-based costing. And when you activity-base things properly, looking at what was going on, it was the time that customer service and sales were spending with customers that took a big high margin, small volume, and you saw the effect of that was very little profit. What we've got here, I think, with for the CFO to get their head around is a change in the dynamic that those high service demand customers don't necessarily cost that much more in the future because you've got chatbots answering questions. You've got automated service calls. You've got sales calls being transcripted. As you play back like the CFO's lens, you mentioned ChatGPT. We're a year past ChatGPT. Happy birthday to ChatGPT. And so now it's real. And so a lot of the AI things that we're talking about are real, including the service costs that you mentioned. So I even go to the next place when I talk about CFOs, which is how does your cost structure change? You now apply AI in these areas, whether it's with sales and customer success, but you still pay for it in certain ways because you're paying for a software vendor. You're paying for multiple software vendors in the way that you pay for a podcast. A lot of these companies are subsidized. You look at OpenAI, which is a private company and is the lifeblood to a lot of this. And so you're essentially getting a subsidized cost of AI across the market. I just want to mention this point, Kevin, because we're already into the era of AI. And what's going to happen is your AI is going to start costing you money. So you're going to shift from certain areas which are more labor-oriented to software spend. Then what you're probably going to realize over time is that costs money too. Now I have a, a new vendor sprawl, which is around AI. And I'm actually seeing this already because if you work for a technology company or even just a big corporate, 
you're investing internally in AI. You have an IT CIO team, they're experimenting with ChatGPT, they have an open AI license. And that stuff is going to get expenses over time. So I'm just pointing out that you have a new P&L equation. Again, my nothing new under the sun mentality, you have a new P&L equation in the same way that SaaS, now you have 700 SaaS vendors and you don't know how you got there. Now you're going to have all these AI-related costs. It's very expensive to process AI. Uh, It's very expensive to maintain it, especially if you're building it in-house. And so CFOs need to also get ready for this equation, how the AI actually costs money, especially in its first few years. Do you think that AI is going to become incredibly expensive? I would think that it follows any innovation curve where like a Moore's law type thing where, you know, the University of Chicago once upon a time to run a computer had a whole lab or wing of the the university, but now it's in our hands in terms of the mobile phone. So yes, in the early years, the computational costs of AI will be very expensive. If you are a company that is running your own models, you will pay for the chips. If you haven't already heard, let me tell you, the chips are in higher demand than ever, which drives up price. And if you look at NVIDIA's earning reports, then you can just see how much people expect the demand for AI chips and infrastructure to be. So that's going to be very high. If you purchase AI as a service with an open AI or Anthropic or some of these other big areas, those are probably going to be subsidized in the early days, which is how AWS and Azure and Google Cloud were. So you would pay for them and they give you hundreds of thousands of dollars of credits to get you hooked. So that's actually happening right now with these AI teams. So the actual cost to the AI producers is going to be high because of Moore's law. We haven't gotten the computational balance over time. I assume that with innovative things that everyone needs, we just figure out better ways to make it cheaper. So you just have to be aware of both sides of things. Bottom line, take advantage of any subsidies you get right now because the costs are side and be aware probably of not relying too much on any specific AI strategy, whether it's using multiple vendors or having a hybrid mix of internal AI and third-party vendor AI, because that's ultimately what gets you in trouble. If you're all in and one hosting strategy, you may have to unplug a lot of things when you go to the cloud. And then if you're one in on one cloud provider, that's a tough renegotiation and that's your second highest cost outside of people. So it's the same with AI. Take advantage of the subsidies early and make sure you hedge so you're never tied to one AI strategy. That is, from a strategic point of view, and CFO advising the board on what to do with AI, that's a very good point. Looking from that point of view, again, as the CFO is the strategic advisor, what else do you think the CFO perhaps should be telling the board? From a CFO perspective, you need to make sure they're as realistic as possible. A board member that's reading about AI and something transformational like this is probably thinking, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing enough of this? Why are these things that AI can automate still so expensive in our business? Why aren't you using AI to embed it in your product and generate more revenue? Because everyone wants AI. And so I think the CFO just needs to be very well educated, both on the macro factors, like where they can apply AI for cost savings but also pretty educated about the internal product portfolio and offering of their company, because I would think they have to be a pretty strong voice in the room about why and when, or even why not, 
the company is leveraging AI in their offering. Think about autonomous driving. Autonomous driving came out and then it got really good a few years ago. And then we thought we would have robo-taxis in 2021 or 2022. And here we are, and it's going to be another five, 10 years, and we don't even believe it's going to happen anymore. And so there is going to be an element of AI where the euphoria wears off and there's just some use cases that aren't realistic. And so the CFO has to keep the board at bay so that they don't have any unrealistic expectations about the use of AI. That's actually a very interesting parallel to the smart car that's going to drive itself. I'll tell you. So in Israel, there's a company called Mobileye. They do the autonomous driving algorithms for BMW and Volkswagen and Toyota and everything. Mm -hmm. So I got a new uh, Toyota Corolla a few months ago, and it had self-driving mode. And I was so excited to play with it. Now, I have a friend who's at Mobileye, one of the leaders of the teams, the algorithm teams. And I told him, I said, I've got this new car. I can't wait to try it. He goes, just don't take your hands off the steering wheel. Oh, <laughs> this is yeah. the guy who makes the yeah. algorithms. So maybe that's a good analogy is, yeah, it's here. Yeah, it's going to pretty much 98, 99% make sure that you don't run into a median or hit a dog, God forbid. But keep your hands on the steering wheel. Autonomous driving is not going to be autonomous anytime soon because we're talking about life and death questions and much more serious, I think, ethical debates. I don't want to undermine what we do in business and as a CFO, but these are not, in the most part, life and death situations. There is still a margin for error that's acceptable in business, especially if you want to move fast and be efficient. And in that case, I think that AI can run a little bit more freely. You can maybe put one hand on the steering wheel, but yeah, definitely don't yeah. take the other hand off. We started off by looking at financial accounting, auditing, getting accurate information quickly, where yeah, the answer does have to be right. And in those specific use cases, you can do it. But you move into the CFO world where you're looking to advise on a decision. You do not have to be 100% accurate to have information good enough to make the right decision. 90 to 95% is probably good enough, and you're going to get the decision right. That's full circle on these two big areas with the CFO. You've got the financial forecasting, let's call it the forward-looking CFO, and then the close and the management, the backwards-looking CFO. With the forward-looking CFO, I do think that you're right, that you can tolerate 60 to 65%, 75%, meaning you're running these scenarios. So much is going to change anyway. You just want speed. And so you will happily let AI run some different scenarios or models or multivariate tests for you. On the backwards looking stuff, we're truly in plays where we play. We think there's a lot of value in 99 to 99.9% .9 accuracy. We don't think it's 100%. We don't think anyone ever gets there. But we do benchmark our AI and benchmark our models and compare it to the audit sampling workflows. And so we are definitely striving to get to those we call triple nine or quadruple nine or stuff like that. And that's on the backwards looking stuff, right? That's just access to data that's already happened and you just need to cobble it together. So to your point, that's where I bifurcate AI as it relates to the CFO. You could be much riskier looking ahead, but you can be much more accurate looking backwards. Yeah. We said a few minutes ago, happy birthday, ChatGPT. You're now a year old. You're generally being accepted by folks. You're part of the infrastructure. Take us forward a year from now, Isaac. What do you think the next thing is going to be that we're going to be accepting in the same way as ChatGPT? 
we've been doing this for three or four years. So when ChatGPT came out for us, it wasn't surprising at all. We've been talking about AI for years now. And ChatGPT for other people was the iconic marketing launch of AI. It was essentially a product in ChatGPT by OpenAI. But really, that was the first kind of ubiquitous consumer-facing use case for AI. So it elevated the work that we had been doing for several years. And what I can tell you for doing it for several years is that it really takes a long time. The AI, the algorithms, they do get better and smarter, but we're solving more and more complex problems each time and just moving up the curve. My point is in one year from now, I think people are going to be disappointed if they think there's going to be another level of chat GPT that's so surprising and so mind-blowing. I think a lot of the innovation is happening behind the scenes and it always has been. And then also, I'm unfortunately not as bold that there's going to be a chat GPT 2.0 to blow our minds. I think we're just going to start to see incremental pockets of AI within our life. We've probably seen the big game changer. I suppose if we look back to where the other big game changers have been, I remember right back when I was in the process of qualifying to be an accountant, this thing arrived in the office, this box with a screen on top of it. Oh, it's an IBM PC. What do you those? Oh, it's got this package on it. Oh, it looks like a piece of analysis paper with all these cells in. Oh, you can put formulas in these cells. Now, that was game-changing, but did much happen in the next year? Not really, but over time, a lot happened. Right. This thing called the, the internet came along. I think that's the idea. The confusing thing in today's world is the deluge and just abundance of information and excitement. And also, we're just so used to instant gratification that there's this assumption that it's going to happen now. And I actually think we're heading into that year two, where we got excited, we got scared, but now we realize that it's just another IBM. And we got to unpack it and we got to play with it. And there's going to be some cells and some things we're pretty familiar with it, but it's going to take a long time until it's everyday use in our lives. Is that five years because things are moving faster these days? It could be. AI could just be completely changing the workflow of accounting and finance by five years from now. Could be a little more though, right? Just based on classic adoption trends. So we've seen the big bang. Don't expect anything particularly dramatic in the next 12 months. But by the time we move out five years, a lot will have moved on. I've just mentioned the PC, the style of the PC, the style of the web. That's the same sort of tech experience we got with those. I've spent a few years at this, so that would be my guess. Isaac, that has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for being this week's guest on The Grow CFO Show. Thanks for having me, Kevin, and I'll see you next time. 